to welcome to the stage um, Professor Jacinta Douglas. Uh, she's our speaker tonight to present the lecture and her work is going to highlight the power of relationships and community belonging in making a difference to the lives of people with severe brain injury. And social isolation is one of the big issues that people with ABI face. So along with me, I hope you will now welcome Professor Jacinta Douglas to the stage. Thank you so much, Tom. And it's so lovely to see so many gorgeous faces here um, and enjoying an evening together to catch up and to, and to network and to think about actually the important issues around social, around social connection. So as, as Tom so um, beautifully said, we're going to talk about social relationships. You know, I feel particularly honoured and privileged to be here tonight, to be delivering the second annual Alan Martin Memorial Lecture. I feel Alan very close by, Joan. Um, and when I was pondering around the topic, having been invited around the topic of tonight's presentation, I have to tell you it didn't take me very long to hit upon the idea of community connection. Because Alan Martin, epitomised the power of community connections. Alan never ceased to amaze me with the number of connections he had. Yeah, <laughs> the number of connections he was able to draw in to a good cause. The number of connections he maintained over so many years was something to be in awe of. He really was one of those people who behind the scenes, never was out the front, always behind the scenes, was actually working towards, and in the case that I knew Alan, towards making a difference to the quality of life of people who had very severe acquired brain injury. He often didn't tell anybody about what he was doing. He didn't tell Joan about what he was doing until after it was all packaged up and ready to go. The scholarship is a really good example of that. And one of the things that for all of us who know or knew Alan, will know that you actually couldn't say no to Alan. <laughs> and one of the things that I learned was there was no point in trying. You were much better just to say yes and get on with it. So when I thought about tonight, that was probably my big, biggest joy, was the fact that I had lots of opportunity to reflect on a man who had made so many contributions in so many different ways that I wasn't even aware of until we sat around and, and talked about his life together. So it's really fitting that the Victorian Brain Injury Recovery Association in conjunction with the Summer Foundation decided that we needed to have a way of commemorating a man who'd made such a big difference over so many years to the area that is close to all of our hearts that is making a difference to the lives of people with acquired brain injury. So the title Community Connection, as I say, wasn't a difficult one to come up with. And just quickly, let me see if I can go the right way. Yep. Um, let me talk to you about what we're going to sort of have a quick journey through on our way through this presentation tonight. We're going to actually talk about relationships and community belonging after brain injury. In fact, I'm starting at the sad end, if you like. It's the end where I have to say, as somebody who's worked in rehabilitation for 40 years, we still are not doing very well. We still are not making a difference when it comes to social connections. And we'll talk about some of the data that underpins how we know that. Then I want to talk to you about a project that is really just starting, is starting, is ready to start, and we're recruiting participants. This is not a recruiting participants ad, but you may um, come up with some ideas about people who you could actually connect us up with. And this is a program that actually looks at community connection for people who have very severe brain injury living in the community. We're going to look at a little bit of evidence simply because the program is, is, is founded on evidence that we now have about what makes a difference in people's lives. And then we're going to actually look at the stories of two people. And these two people, Michael and Samantha, were absolutely instrumental in actually shaping the way we've thought about this multi-component community connection program. 
Michael and Samantha both had very severe brain injuries and without their, if you like, insights through experience, without working with them, this program would not actually exist and would not have been funded by, the, by ISCA to actually um, test it out. So that's where we're going. But before we do that, having had a couple of drinks or one drink or half a drink and some food, I'm going to ask you to take just a few seconds because I don't think it'll take long to think about what it is that brings meaning to your life. If you were participating in a research project and the researcher said to you, so what do you reckon are the sources of meaning in your life? What would you think? You don't have to tell anybody, it's your little secret. Okay? What are the sources of meaning in your life? What are the things that you wouldn't ever want to do without? Or would you do your utmost not to do without? Now we are at a golf course, so if, it, if you do think my game of golf, fair enough, but move a little bit beyond the immediate environment. I'm going to tell you the answer that pretty much everybody who's asked that question all over the world and at any point in their lifespan. You can ask kids, you can ask adolescents, you can ask those difficult adolescents who say very little and they still come up high on their list with the response and that response is relationships and when you go a little bit further people talk about different sorts of relationships they talk about family relationships they talk about that really special person in their life that special partner and how that partner stays with them they talk about friendships, the gang, the people you might have gone through university with that you still see, the people that you've had special events in your life with, the people you've had holidays with, all those relationships. People also talk about relationships in different contexts, contexts like at work. And I can tell you, I wouldn't have actually remained in the university environment if it hadn't been for the relationships. And I reckon every one of us, if we think about work, probably would have had moves much more regularly even if it hadn't have been about the relationships. So workplaces bring with them relationships. Some wanted, some, some, sometimes not. People also talk about leisure, the things that they enjoy together and the people they do them with. It's interesting when people talk about what brings meaning to their life. They say, the people I do stuff with, so doing stuff is really important, but doing stuff with people is really important. And you know, for some people, just the people that you meet every day out in your community, being recognised in your community is really important, whether it be the bus driver. I don't know, do you know about the bus driver salute? I only learnt about the bus driver salute. And apparently, bus drivers are really important in some people's lives. The fact that they recognise you as you get on the bus for some people is really important because it means that they are recognised. The barista who knows how you have your coffee when you go into the coffee shop constantly amazes me from an, as a neuropsych from a memory perspective. How do they remember? <laughs> I can't work it out, but they do. So all of those sorts of issues, being recognised in your community, those things actually bring meaning to life. And sadly, as I said, that's probably the area that we've done most poorly in with respect to supporting people with brain injury. Still to this day, makes me feel uncomfortable at the very least. And you know, it doesn't matter where in the world you ask people, it doesn't matter what sort of rehab they're having, it doesn't matter how long they've had rehab for. And that is what actually we find is that the majority usually more than 50% of people who've had a brain injury, not always a severe brain injury, talk to you about the fact that social disability, social difficulties, difficulties in restricted relationships, not having relationships, haunts them. 
So Derek Wade, way back in 1998, asked a huge number of people, 314 people. That's a lot of people. Okay, how are things going at six months post-traumatic brain injury? And 61% of them described social disability, described having few friends, little interaction with people, feeling isolated. In the US, up in Washington State, Soraya Dickman asked 210 people. And she asked them between three to five years post moderate to severe brain injury, how are things going for you? Asked them across the whole range of domains. And you know what they said? 49% of them, remember this is moderate to severe, nearly 50% again said social integration was pretty miserable. I haven't gone back to my life socially that I had before my brain injury. Robin Tate, bless her soul, um, asked 100 people with very severe brain injury back in 1989, six years after they'd had a severe brain injury, how things were going. And 63% of that group said, oh, I don't have any relationships. Relationships are really tough for me. And Robin, as, as any of you who know Robin, as only Robin could do, went back 23 years later to the same people and said, how are things going now? And really sadly, from my perspective, still more than 54% of them gave the same response. The worst area of my life is restricted relationships. Now, in every one of these examples, people had, for example, in New South Wales, they were compensable cases who had access to, the, to motor accident rehabilitation. Um, in, in Washington State, they had, were all part of an integrated um, rehabilitation program and um, the same at six months in the UK. So these people were actually receiving rehabilitation. So they're the figures, if you like, more than 50%. One of the things that, that has struck me over talking to people with brain injury over many, 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 many years is the feelings that go with that. Rachel um, was a young woman who, in fact, in many ways was a success story and still is. But Rachel, when I talked to her about life, um, was only two, nearly three years post-injury. She was 22. And I've, I've actually bold-faced the bit that always throws a loop to me because she talks about she's back home living with her mum. Her mum is really the person that she has her, her relationships with, a single relationship with a parent. But she has this amazing description when she says, sometimes a loneliness sort of washes over me and I just want somebody to talk to. Such a simple want and goal. Chris was actually longer than that post-injury. He was a four and a bit years post-injury. And Chris, again, brings a lump to your throat in a sense because Chris says, so that's the way it is for me, always being left out. He goes on to describe why. He describes how people think they might catch a disease from him because he's a bit different, how people avoid him on the street, how people actually don't maintain eye contact with him because he's a little bit different. He's a little bit, you know, disinhibited. He's a little loud sometimes. He doesn't quite know when to actually move on sometimes, but he feels socially excluded. And finally, Dave, who was 15 years post-injury, and I have to say Dave's another success story. He was working um, in a pretty, really good position. And Dave describes the fact that he's sort of one, one of, I'm on my own. And at 30 years old, a sense of not having any interactions. And again, a lot of stories about the feelings that not having social interactions can bring with it. So we have figures, we have data, we have stats that say this is not a good look. We have people's feelings that actually, um, if you work with people, make you feel like you're a bit of a failure. And then when you talk to people directly about just that issue, friends, do you have any friends? And, and just recently, um, with 23 people who were on average 10 years post, that's a long time post, but a, a big range, just to see how many friends they actually had by 10 years, if you like, then we find that 
eight of those 23 people had no friends at all, including family and paid carers. Not at all, a zero answer. Again, that's a bit um, confronting. And what's really important is we know, not just with people with traumatic brain injury, but we know with all of us, the actual amount of relationships, the amount of quality relationships we have in our lives are significantly associated with quality of life and with what we call strong tie support or social support. And social support is what gets you through those tough crises. It's what gets you through those things that are important. It's something that Alan knew really, really well. He got great social supports around him to get things done. When you actually exclude family members and paid carers, that whole group of 23 people on average had 1.5 friends. Now really you only need one really good friend, but the literature says it doesn't, I mean it can be a family member, but it also means that places a lot of um, demands on that family member. Being both a mum and a friend, being a sister and a friend, who's there to give social support can sometimes be quite demanding. So when you also then look at the themes that come out of the qualitative part of this component, it actually again resembles some of those feelings that Rachel and, and Chris um, talked about. And they were things of an experience of loss, an ongoing loss 10 years later, a lack of understanding and a unfulfilled desire to share. It's really hard if you don't have somebody to tell your funny stories to. And these people had the same funny stories we have to tell, etc. Okay, so when you look at this, it's not surprising for years. And I've been, you know, studying for so damn long that I can even remember some of these studies. Not the 1957 one, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't reading that one, <laughs> but I was reading the 1996 one for sure. And that is that having social relationships actually means you're less likely to die. Pretty good outcome. It also means you live longer. It also means that you have more resistance to disease, even the common cold. But particularly things like major diseases, cardiovascular disease, disease, things like stroke. It also has been shown more recently that in fact having social relationships means that you have less age-related cognitive decline, which is really important when you get to the end of the age span that I'm looking at. So friends become a really important part of health and mortality. And, you know, I've said this, you, others, I'm, I, you will have heard me say this before because I think Deborah Umberson captures it beautifully when she says, the evidence linking social relationships to health, mortality and morbidity is as strong as evidence linking smoking, obesity, blood pressure and physical activity to health. But you don't hear as much about it, do you? Nobody's actually talking today on the news, like I heard, about putting a, a tax, a tariff on, sh on friendships if you don't have them, like they are talking about it with respect to sugar and obesity in drinks. We also know, and more specifically, that having social relationships is a, is a buffer. It attenuates the effects of stress. And from work that we've done also, it actually, social, the number of social, blah, social relationships that you have predicts depression in people with TBI, but not only people with TBI, but, pe but their family members. Okay? So, looks like a good, pretty good place from my perspective to start to maybe very, very definitely direct our, inter our if you like, our interventions. We know though that, that traumatic brain injury, brain injury of any kind, is an incredibly complex phenomenon. It's an individual phenomenon. You know that in a brain injury, you have the potential to pretty much damage every part of your neural system. Social interaction requires every part of your neural system. 
when you actually just look at people having interaction together and you look at a, a functional MRI, there's no part of the brain that's not busy. Okay? So it's probably the area that, not surprisingly, is really, really vulnerable. So this piece of work I'm going to describe very broadly is some work that, along with my colleagues at La Trobe, Chris Bigby, Teresa Iacono and Lucy Knox, and my colleagues at the Summer Foundation at the time, um, Di Winkler and Libby Calloway, Libby's at Monash, um, we put in a project to ask for a significant amount of money from ISCA, the Institute for Safety, Compensation and Rehabilitation Research, and they kind of liked it. So they gave us some money and we're nearly ready to start with ethics having uh, just about gone through. The aim of this project is to implement and evaluate the efficacy of this program and it's a multi-component program. What we did was we kind of threw out the idea that we had to do lots of randomised control trials because I don't know about for all of you in the audience who work with people probably know that Every person you work with is different. They're all individuals. Every therapist is an individual. Every person the therapist works with is an individual. So this program actually is, is based on the idea that we need individually tailored intervention. It's based on single case experimental design. It's not based on a large group of people with a huge number of exclusion criteria, which means the people that, are, that we keep seeing in therapy are left out. You know, I read amazing RCTs and when I read the participant inclusion and exclusion criteria, they never have the people that I work with. They were too severe, they didn't have clear goals, they weren't able to interact in the community, they were not able to actually, you know, have to analyse a specific thing, whatever it happened to be. So this program doesn't care around those issues, it cares about the individual at that individual level. And there's three groups of people we're interested in, those living at home with paid support, those living alone with paid support, and those living in a group home or some sort of, sort of shared environment, okay? So it's got three components. You actually look at the person and you say, how are they functioning? Maybe I should help them with their functioning, with their skills and their behaviours. Maybe that's doing pretty well. We're very good at that level in many ways in rehab. Then you have a look at, okay, how are they going with their relationships? Are they able to develop relationships? Are they able to maintain them? Maybe I need to address that level, if you like, of their lives. And then you have a look at their involvement in the community. So it's got three levels that, that we're actually thinking through. This is the program logic, and I don't know why we put this in. It's because it took so ages to do in the grant. <laughs> so I thought, oh, damn it, I've got to show it to somebody. <laughs> and, and the program logic just says, what's the issue? The issue is that people with severe TBI have reduced social functioning, they have few or no close and casual relationships, and they have little or no involvement in their community. Not all of them, but as a group, okay? The activities then, what we're saying is you need to develop a, a personal profile. Every clinician in the room will say, yeah, that's exactly what we do, okay? It's really testing good practice. And then you need to identify where those problems are, implement and evaluate a program and evaluate it with single case experimental design, a rigorous single case experimental design that we know now the Oxford Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine says it is at the top of the pyramid. A good N of one trial is as good as any RCT can be. Okay, and what we'll develop is we'll develop lots of interventions along the way, but we'll also use the interventions that we already know have been shown to work in, in, in that we've got evidence to support. And it focuses on five people. It focuses on the person who has the brain injury. It focuses on their family members people who work with them, the paid carers. It focuses on established friends, maybe just a little bit established. Maybe they're not really fully established, but it focuses on people the person sees as a friend. And it focuses on the people they interact with in the community. So it's a, it's a network. See, Alan would have been right. It's a network that we're thinking about. Okay, 
So the interventions that we've also got in this program are interventions that have been shown. This won't mean anything to a lot of you, but we have an evidence hierarchy in therapy. There's some evidence that has got, there's some interventions that have no established evidence about whether they work or not. There are some interventions that have a little bit of evidence and there are some evidence, uh, interventions that have a lot. The, the interventions that we've included, if you like, in the menu, in the sort of um, place where you can go and pluck an intervention from, are interventions that have been shown to be feasible and have been shown to be effective at least at a single case level. Okay? There are also interventions that for, most, for, most, for the most part have been shown to have proof of concept, they work. But they don't work necessarily on an RCT level. Most of the time some of them haven't been tested, some of them have. So some of them are things that have, um, if you like, classic high level evidence. So knowing the evidence, I'll just go through this in the sense that I was lucky enough to be part of an international um, consortium who looked at all the evidence around um, treatments for people with, with brain injury. And, you know, we worked really, really hard, I have to say. Um, and it was a huge task, but I think it was a really good task because we were able to say, okay, this is what's out there. We were able to develop algorithms for clinicians to say, if you're seeing someone like this and they can do this, then this is what you can do next. So an algorithmic approach to treatment. We also developed ideas for um, audit criteria so that you can see if you're doing a good job. And the Journal of Head Trauma Rehabilitation, which is probably you know, the highest impact head trauma rehabilitation journal, um, agreed to publish all of these papers in a special issue that was published in the last issue in 2014. So it's all there and, and all available. And when you look at the next level, there's five parts to this, and they look at different, if you like, areas of cognitive functioning. They look at people really early, but then they look at people in the longer term. So we look at information processing, we look at um, executive function, awareness, we look at all of those different aspects of the individual's functioning that have an impact on the way they actually get on with their life, on how they live well with the brain injury. So it's all there, which is a good thing. But the thing that wasn't there was um, a systematic evaluation of, of whether community-based programs work. And luckily, uh, Robin Tate and her colleagues in Sydney did a systematic review of community-based um, leisure social activity programs so that we know what levels of evidence we're dealing with in that area. What works? What do people find makes a difference? So again, we have, if you like, principles of practice. We have practice strategies. We have whole programs that you can actually select from to make a difference in the person's life in this particular program. So, two people that I want to talk about who helped develop this over a long period of time were Michael and Samantha, and there were others along the way. But I chose Michael and Samantha. I did a gender balance thing. Um, did have two young men at the beginning, and I said, no, we'll have um, a, a young man and a young woman. Let's start with Michael, so you can see how this program works, okay? So Michael, um, at 20 years of age, Michael lived at home with his family. He was about to complete his apprenticeship as an electrician. He had lots of friends. He was in a steady relationship with his gorgeous girlfriend. Um, he was really active in the local cricket club. And at that same time, he also sustained a very severe brain injury. And for those of you who know about severity indicators, a Glasgow Coma scale of three on admission is pretty bad. And his PTA was greater than 100 days. They stopped measuring, in fact. So he pretty much had a very strong amnesic flavour early on in terms of memory. Michael came, um, if you like, into, into contact with me at the age of 27. He continued to live at home. He had significant levels of depressive symptomatology and he had a great deal of anxiety. 
He also had minimal, and I probably could say almost no social involvement. So he was living at home with his mum and dad and really quite sad about the whole situation as they were. When you looked at, at when we, we actually thought about Michael and, and what was going to be really important for him, the most important goal was to actually have him getting out there and, and being able to maybe have some interactions in the community. Remembering he has a high level of anxiety and we thought, well, he's doing actually nothing at all. So if we could have Michael doing one activity a week, participating regularly in one community activity with other people, that's a pretty good gain because that opens up lots of, lots of doors and windows. He can talk to other people, he can see how he feels, he can evaluate how he's going. So we actually thought he was a good um, candidate for a community leisure program. And at the time that was being run, it was a community leisure program that was funded by the TAC and involved people actually choosing activities they wanted to do in their own local community. I've told I've talked about this research, we actually evaluated the research, talked to the people and, and did all of that, and evaluated the program and, and did all of the talking and, and helping people set their goals, etc. Um, so yeah, it seemed like he would be a good option for that, but one of the things that you know, or you knew as soon as you talked to Michael, was he really needed support to be able to participate in anything in the community, to get him out the front door, okay? So really the premise of this at the time was if we can increase a person's social activity, there it is, if we can increase social activity, we have the option then of potentially developing social ties and then having sources of social support, both instrumental, practical, somebody who can, you know, um, do your washing for you, or expressive social support, which is somebody who you can share your problems with, and that we know makes a difference to emotional well-being. Okay, so that's the, that's the kind of road or the highway we were trying to work our way into through social activity. So if you think about then Michael, what Michael says at the beginning, or when we look at Michael's, if you like, profile, he's doing everything with his, with his carers, with his attendant carers, um, mostly shopping and movies, etc. He's actually not talking to anybody else when he goes out, so when we go out with him and have a look, he's basically being taken to do his shopping. So he's got community presence, but not really community participation. Um, when you ask Michael about the people that he feels like he's close to, he says mum and his carers. Really important people in his life. If you ask Michael about, so who, if you have a problem, who do you reckon you can talk to? He says, Oh, I can talk to mum, and if I have a problem, maybe I could talk to Keith, my cousin. So there's, there's two people in that sphere, okay? And he has a really simple goal, and that's to be happy again. So a reasonably good director for us as clinicians and people working with people with brain injury. So what we did was we actually helped Michael select some activities to do and it's not rocket science, you won't be surprised, the thing he loved the most was the indoor cricket team. You know, that's lesson number one. Make sure you find out what the person likes to do and he loved playing cricket. So the fact that he still likes playing cricket is not a surprise as everybody with brain injury I talk to says, you know, the brain injury doesn't change who I am. It just gives me who I am with a brain injury. And, and that's the, the reality. So interestingly, the thing that, that Michael enjoyed and continued, he tried them all, didn't know why people went out to dinner, didn't seem to have any function. Um, it wasn't as good as the food his mum made. Um, so, uh, but he clearly enjoyed, he also enjoyed the woodwork and the, and the billiards um, activities. Through that, going to the indoor cricket team, he met one person with similar interests. The indoor cricket team of all of those was the actual only team that wasn't a disability activity either. It was a normal, if you like, um, a typical community activity. Um, when you talk to him at the end of the program, he now says, I've got one or two friends I can talk to. 
There's Keith and there's this new cricket friend. For us, in a way, that was a huge achievement. If you can increase having one person you can have contact with and feel good about in a very short amount of time with very little expenditure, just making sure what we did from the interventions perspective was talk to everybody in those programs around the sorts of things that, that and Michael helped us do it, the thing, things that were difficult for him, what might happen if he got a little bit angry or pissed off in the situation, what he might do because of his brain injury or because of his difficulties with controlling behaviour. So there was an education component and there was somebody to get in there and support him through the first however many sessions he thought he needed somebody to be around with him. And one of the things at the end when we talked about how he felt, he talks about, it's a quote from, from Michael saying, I feel mainly positive. But I get a bit down because of tiredness. I was really delighted to hear that now there's a reason for being a bit down. Fatigue we know is a huge problem for people with brain injury. He's recognising that. But generally I'm positive unless I'm too tired. Doesn't that sound like you? Oh, I don't know about you, it sounds like me. So it's not just that, gee, I'd like to know what happiness felt like again. So we felt that, that Michael was a really good example of that individualised, taking an approach that could address different levels for that individual. And if you look at Michael's test scores, they actually reinforce that. So here, if you look at the depression um, scale of the neurobehavioural functioning inventory, his depression score has reduced, his mental health has increased, that's a good thing. His what are called problems with strong tie support have reduced, it's a problem scale, so you want it to go down. Lack of involvement has, the problems have reduced. On the community integration questionnaire, his social integration has gone up. These are raw scores, which is why this is huge, and these are little. And his quality of life has gone up. Okay, now there's no control here, in a sense. It's not an RCT. So a lot of people would say to you, maybe that would have happened anyway. But if we don't have that, that's phase zero, if you like, um, evidence. If, he, if it got worse, you wouldn't think the intervention had done anything, okay? It also was reinforced by his, his qualitative responses or his interview stuff when he just talked about how life was. Okay, so for him, the next issue then is, the, the idea of MCOM Connect is there are cycles of intervention. So you actually address one goal, see how it goes, and that might be all you need to do. Or you go back and you select another goal. We started at the community level with, with Michael, Perhaps then what we need to do is work on issues around maintaining the relationships he's made. It will be dependent on the individual. Perhaps what we find out is there are some skills that we need to develop for Michael that will improve his ability to stay active in the community. So you might go back to that level and go through the whole process again, set a single goal, deliver the intervention, whatever that intervention is in the menu of interventions we have and see if that helps. You can have a holiday in between. You can change clinicians in between if you want to. Okay? You can move house and still work on another goal. So the next one person is Samantha. Samantha was 22 years old at the time of her injury. Um, I think, I, I was going to say, I, I, Michael's the person, you know, who, who I think about is I don't like being alone, being alone makes me feel sad. And Samantha's the person who I think about is, as the person who'd like to start talking to people, was the way she described what she'd like to achieve um, in any sort of an intervention. At 22, she'd completed high school, she'd done part of a university degree, she was working full time as a, in a pretty high level administration position, doing really well. Living at home with her family still, she was saving up. She described herself as a social butterfly and so did everybody else who knew her. And then she had a really severe brain injury in a motor vehicle crash. She was unconscious for more than four weeks. Um, Samantha comes to us into um, an intervention um, program clinic um, at the age of 30. So eight years later, she's still at home living with her mum and dad. 
she's got incredibly high social anxiety, she's got a lot of social psychological distress. If you just take the total score on the DAS, she's at the 73rd percentile, which means she's more distressed than 73% of the population. That's high. Okay. Um, she has a lot of social communication problems. She's absolutely not wrong. Starting to talk to people is a really tough ask for her. Um, her rating on the Latrobe Communication Questionnaire puts her three standard deviations above the mean for problems with communication. Can't get much further above the mean. Um, and the only thing she's doing is, is again accessing the community with paid support. So when we have a look at how things are going for Samantha, we end up focusing on a different level. We end up focusing on her functioning and in particular on her social communication. That's where her biggest problems are. It's her fear of talking to people that actually stops her from even going outside sometimes. So that's where you start. Then you actually think about a goal and for her it was that when she started to talk, if she did, or even starting to talk, she had no coping strategies around even having a conversation. So we thought we'd actually um, look at that, given we had a program to do that, that had evidence, and we delivered the intervention. There were two programs, actually, I should say here, we could have chosen that have evidence. There was our own, and there was um, Leanne Torres working with Everyday Communication Partners, which is it's, it's a really nice way to deal with people who have communication problems. You address the problem from the point of view of the people they talk to. But really the only people that Samantha was talking to was a particular paid carer and her mum. And they were really good at talking to her. It still wasn't giving her a, a social life, if you like. Now this is a single case um, profile. We, only, we have three baselines here. We use the thing called percentage of non-overlapping corrected data. That makes you all feel really excited, I know. Made us feel excited because it's quite rigorous and it means that you correct the data for any trends that are happening. And what you can see here is that at baseline, she's pretty stable. Of course she is. She's eight years post-injury. And then with intervention, you get a bit of a jump. We had one dip here and she was actually quite unwell at this data collection point with another increase. But there's no overlap between this data, this data and this data, which means that it's an effective outcome. I, I took out her quotes and I wish I hadn't now, but I can tell you that she says things like, it's amazing. You know, I actually talk to people, I know what to do. I know that if I don't understand, I can ask people. Such a simple, simple thing. So anyway, what we found when we looked at her scales, if you like, overall, all of those measures that we used, we found that she had a reduction in her negative coping strategies, an increase in her productive coping strategies, functional communication problems went down from both her own perspective and from her close other's perspective, her mum, um, discourse coping increased, and if you look at her overall psychological distress, over six weeks, it reduced to the 47th percentile, which is where we generally sit, all of us, that's within the normal range. So she's about as psychologically distressed as 50% of the population. So it's, it's quite a significant change. And that was maintained for three months. So we, we measured it at the end of the program, we came back a month later, and we came back three months after that. Okay. I don't know about you, but I'm very I was very excited about that. So, again, with Samantha then is, okay, let's see if we actually can address some of the, the difficulties in her life at a different level. And almost um, without planning, what we found is that one of her goals when she was talking about communication, she wants to be an R&B singer, and she started to do a singing group. So by doing the singing group, we actually, because she felt more confident to talk to people, she actually then addressed a community interaction goal. So she ended up developing her own next goal and addressing it in many ways. Six weeks of supporting that, what sort of things can we do? Let's see how we go after that. So it's, it's an iterative process, it's a cycle, but it's a very, very planned cycle. So, for those of you who are therapists, 
it's, it's kind of a, a, a framework to think through. Um, for those of you who are struggling with um, living with brain injury, it's, I suppose, finally being able to say to you that, yes, we're waking up to the fact that maybe what's really important is the people around you and how you interact with them and how you can develop the li your life the way you want to. Um, for families, it also actually, um, you play a big part in this, so that the people who are in the person's life play a very big part in talking through the process of setting goals as well as the individual if they want to and if the individual wants them to. So it's, it's, a, it's a program that actually looks at relationships. It is multi-component. It's not the same for any two people, which is why we've been funded to do it with 27 different individuals and to test it using single case experimental design with 27 different goals, if that's the case. Um, all of those issues that it does require us to know the evidence and to develop the evidence and it does require us to apply it quite creatively with the people that we work with. And we are currently rec recruiting participants. So if you have anybody you're working with, if you have a family member, then feel free. Um, as I say, it's, it's something that we're kind of excited about. And you know, all of this work has hundreds of people who have been involved in this work, mostly the people who have brain injury who have, been, who have been my best teachers, the very best teachers you can ever have, um, the very best people in, in my experience to show you the path forward. You've just got to open your eyes to see it many times. And it takes a long time when you've got a very severe brain injury. So thank you for your attention. And if you want to make any comments, if you want to add to the discussion, I'd love to hear comments and questions. There's a hand. Ah, we've got one here and, and, and a hand down the back. Too. Do we have a microphone that... I, I think I can see Oh, yeah, yeah, you can. <laughs> to get those achievements, do you feel it needs paid, clinically trained people or can they be motivated, trained volunteers? Oh, that's such a big question. <laughs> You've been reading the literature. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a really big question. One of the things that I actually think is um, we're, we're testing it in this framework. Firstly, we're working with allied health professionals to see how we go. Then the next phase is working with, if you like, disability support workers who have less um, experience. And then it's working with people who actually um, don't necessarily have any experience from the point of view of professional training to see if they can support the person in the same way. So we know there's good evidence to say that volunteers can make a huge difference in people's lives and that volunteering, particularly of some people with the same lived experience, makes a big difference. Somebody who's had the experience themselves who steps into the volunteer space so I don't have a really clear answer yet. Hopefully we can contribute to that. But I certainly don't think we have um, enough evidence to say it's not volunteers. What I can say is you do need to understand the person's functioning, skill levels, abilities and capacity or capability really well. And so having the information that comes from the, the professional, um, if you like, input is really, really important. I see it as a collaborative effort. I think um, rehabilitation is a collaboration between the person themselves, between the people around them, between the professionals around them, so that we all work together to that same goal. And, and it's hard to say if you can do without any of those. And I, I, well, I hesitate to say that you could because then the funding bodies would love me. I, I guess my point is, I probably shouldn't have said that. To pay professionals to the level they need to be paid to do it. Mm. And so I guess the trade-off is you say only professionals, paid professionals can do it, and therefore leave the majority completely at, at, at risk. 
for the retaker measured risk and involve volunteers that can then maybe achieve a greater number of people who can improve. Yeah. And I, I think the trick there is the fact that you don't, my belief, and I think we've shown it, Samantha's a really good example of this, six weeks, six weeks of, of intervention with a professional team, with the people around her, made the world of difference. And I can say that that difference has continued because those people who we worked with in her environment have continued to work with her. So it's kind of, um, you know, what do you call it? Uh, it's a ripple effect, yeah, and it's that sort of um, empowering the people around the person to continue on with the work. Um, I, I do think we're full, we, the, the data shows that people who've had long, long-term professional intervention haven't necessarily got great outcomes. <coughs> it's getting the, the right mix. And I'm sh look, there's going to be people in this room who want to say something around the volunteer issue or anything else. Hmm. Yeah, it's relationship again, isn't it? It's relationship within the team. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the best things about coming to a talk. But the other side of that coin is is actually learning from each other so that we can improve it. Um, you know, it's that, that, that yeah, Joan? Um, sorry, there's one down the back then. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, now you can go. No, no, I just say it's following on from what Bob said, because I think Hero Deeds involves the Life After Stroke. Yeah. And some of what you're talking about with some little mini interventions in terms of uh, getting people because some of the stuff, some of the stuff that blocks people from actually being successful in the workplace and having relationships in the workplace is around some of that social communication stuff. Mm -hmm. So I can see there's a great um, mm -hmm. fits in well. Yeah. With, with that synergy. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of their mm -hmm. um, jobs they're doing. Mm -hmm. It's just great. Sorry, down the back. I mean, we're testing it as, I mean, that, that's what's important is that it actually means that you can say, gee, this has worked, this is terrific, or this hasn't. So I agree. In the, in the context of the NDIS, it's looking at maintaining functioning, it's looking at community activity, it's looking at relationships, all of which fit into, if you like, the philosophical framework of an NDIS. So it's, despite the fact that it's being funded at the moment by um, a compensable organisation, a research um, unit that's that's funded by a compensable insurance scheme. It's still a social ins insurance scheme. So absolutely, I agree with you. Yep. Um, before I got involved in working in healthcare, I worked as a drama teacher, and I've been thinking around ideas of creating a theatre group for people with TBI. Do you think that's a possibility to be able to do that? Would NDIS, do you think, be interested in funding something like that? I believe I could incorporate a lot of different uh, things into that group that would, I think, would be better, very beneficial. If you, you know, like you can set up sporting groups for people. Um, you know, you, you, they're often segregated. They're often, you know, sort of they look at age. But the theatre group incorporates everybody. Yeah. And everybody can be involved in different things. We can be very physical. We can involve a lot of different um, learning experiences and opportunities for people to express mm -hmm. themselves as well create this fantastic social 
Look, there are, <laughs> there are examples actually all over the world uh, of, you know, generally in, in the creative space at, at how important that is to support people and how important those activities are. But also there are some, um, there's a, I know I've, I've worked in Canada for a long time and there's a wonderful acting group of people with acquired brain injury and they actually, are, are, you know, are now almost running their funding themselves because they get such a lot of work to do and they've actually created some beautiful um, theatre productions. Um, we know that there's disability um, acting groups in Australia that do a fabulous job as well. So remembering that what, what we have is important is from an NDIS perspective is that it's an individual funding base. So what it means that um, you don't get you don't necessarily get money to set up a program, but in fact the people, if you have a program that is supporting people's community activities and their interactions in the community, then in fact people may be funded to actually participate in your program. So that you would be a service provider under that context. Uh, okay, and you know, one of the things the disability, the NDIS said at a conference I was at last year was that they were not going to Originally it was, we're only going to fund services that actually have evidence and then they looked around and in the disability space there's a lot of things that don't have a great deal of evidence. So they said, we won't fund things that have negative evidence. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of a... Okay, um, so it's a big space. It's a big space and an opportunity. We often talk about it both being a challenge and an opportunity. And then up here, is that one down there? Great, yeah. And in fact, they, they, they actually change, don't they? <laughs> yep. So it's, it's fail safe. Yeah, that's it. But not too personal, Cameron. <laughs> That's the trick. You've got to be careful. Cameron? Is it Cameron? I think so. Cameron? Yeah. 
Exactly. Thank you so much for that personal story. One more. Was there one left? There was somebody in the middle. Yes. That's sorry. <laughs> Yeah. They are absolutely brilliant. So yeah. maybe you could contact that the man yeah. that actually started that. Yeah. Because he they do concerts everywhere. We went and my husband and I and my mother went and seen them at the Melbourne Zoo and a lot of people went purely for the card knot. Mm. And they the way they felt so empowered mm. and, and so it was just beautiful to see and they actually and, and a few of them their story and it was really it was it was a huge insight into their life um it was it was wonderful i, I already know someone who's has an acquired brain injury who has been a writer and yeah. wants to write a story about their experience and they want to perform it and i think that's a great sort of opportunity for people yeah. if we can get them involved in that sort of a situation where they can express their feelings through the theatre i haven't seen anything yeah so in fact again good connections and I think that's what we've been talking about so thank you for everybody's input thank you